Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm in my garden in London, and I'm walking down the garden path to the music room. In there, I'll find my husband, the composer and conductor, Stephen Barlow. Now, we've been married almost 40 years, and I think, however long you've been with someone, you have questions that you'd like to ask your partner. So this podcast is my chance to ask Stephen the questions I've always wanted to ask him about one of his and my greatest passions, classical music. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. Welcome to this episode of Joanna and the Maestro, which is one of the most special we've ever done because we've got the most phenomenal... Stevie, would you say one of the most phenomenal people we know and love? And that's... Uh, the, uh, the... The... The Stephen stop. Fry. Stephen, <laughs> welcome. Will you behave? <laughs> it's very nice to be here. We're looking into your lovely room with books and books, and you're looking back at our ceiling, but we've got... We're trying to... <laughs> As though we have actually got books and things, we're just not showing them to you. It's become rather embarrassing to do a Zoom with books in the background because people think you're showing off, like in the heyday of the horrible lockdown when people were adjusting their shelves to reveal the Flaubert and the Dostoevsky and hide the the Colleen this and the, you know, whatever, the Jack Reacher. I'm proud of my Jack Reacher collection, I'm here to say, by the way. Stephen, our programme is largely about classical music and having sat next door to you in a performance of Tristan and Isolde do you remember that down no, at I, I do, think Grange yes. Park Opera we sat there with tears coursing down our faces Absolutely. I sense that classical music is very much in your bosom it deeply deeply is would you like to tell us kind of when it started (laughs) well i had the advantage of a father who was very musical he as a boy had been a chorister at st paul's cathedral and then at truro because the whole choir was evacuated during the war Mm -hmm. and his period overlapped with that they did some recordings and he was you know a scientist first and foremost but even at university at imperial college he was in charge of the music society and he played piano to grade eight you know so he was very good and he sang in choirs in norfolk when he wasn't working which was almost all the time he would go off and do madrigals and not let us come and listen because he said madrigals were designed to please the singer not the audience (laughs) which is actually probably true of madrigals yes it is yes yes. (laughs) They sound as if they're going to be wonderful, but when you have to listen to them, but I bet they're fun to do. Anyway, so, and he would play, you know, the biggies when he wanted to unwind. He had a Broadway piano, which he'd put together himself. He'd bought it in a mess, and he was being very good with his hands. And he would play Chopin and um, Brahms and Schubert, and the Schubert impromptus. I would would sit um, by the door. He didn't like to be listened to, so I would pretend I wasn't there. And there was something about those impromptus. And I once summoned mm. up the courage to ask him to play another one again because I found I couldn't understand why I was so inexpressibly moved and excited by it. It was just a piano piece and it was a bit of rippling here, but there's something about Schumann. Mm. He was, this sounds a strange thing. And if people are not familiar with these big names and they seem a bit frightening, just as, you know, the names of foreign novelists do, if you say, you know, Pushkin or something, you think, oh, mm. <laughs> because this, I don't know, I grew up being very afraid of big Russian and German names as either intellectuals or, or musicians, because I somehow thought they were above me. And Schubert is one of all of them, perhaps, who is most instantly your friend. 
There's something so warm and impulsive and kind about him, I find. Uh, and he's very cheerful, and we know what a miserable life he had, and a very, very short one. I mean, as short as Keats and Mozart and all the others, if not shorter, actually. He died, I think, of syphilis in an insane asylum. Mm. But the amount of music he produced, and the... I mean, he was a brilliant tunesmith, so he could, he could make a tune out of nothing. In fact, he was almost too good because he would, one would follow another and you almost you always feel that Beethoven, a little bit older, found tunes difficult to come by. So when he got one, he played with it until it died almost. He played with it and played with it and pushed it and pushed it. And so you get this development of what I think you would call the subject, for example, Stevie Maestro, wouldn't mm, you? Absolutely. You know, so the most obvious one is da-da-da-da. You know, it's hardly a tune at all, but he makes it one, yeah? Yeah, you've put your finger right on something, I think. And just going back a little bit, I think Schubert was one of those composers who could write joy. It is so difficult, actually, to write joy. Yeah. You can write every every inch of despair and anxiety. Yes. And you can show you can show earnestness. And anger. Yes. Mm. Th- those impromptus you're talking about. I'm thinking of the A flat major. Da 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 And and that oh, tune just it just goes winding and winding around and it, it it's just full of joy. And also the G flat major impromptu, which I I think you know all these terribly well. I think the one that, that you that your father played that reduced you to tears is the one that made me cry, which I think is the impromptu in A flat. I think that is the one. Yeah. And it's got a m- wonderful middle bit, which is ribbly, ribbly, ribbly. That's ribbly, it. It ribbly, just goes ribbly. into this astonishing. I, for some reason, it just breaks my heart. It's so beautiful. Yes, melody. And it is a mystery, and for those of us who have loved this kind of music and have wanted to find another name for it other than classical, and the only other one people use is serious, which is even more of a dagger to the heart. (laughs) But whatever we want to call this kind of music, this, you know, heritage, this tradition that is European unapologetically because that's where it sort of began. I suppose it began with Pythagoras, yes. didn't it, in Greece when he first shortened a string and, and <laughs> yes. discovered the basic rules of what we think of as, as modern harmony. Harmonic so. sequence. Yes. Exactly. I'm not claiming it's the right music, the only music that is better. Those terms are absurd. But there was a period in which it expanded and grew up, which we could call from the Renaissance through the Baroque into the fully classical period, as we call the age of Mozart, into romantic and then post-romantic, because we couldn't think of anything better, and then into the modern 20th century music and the development of uh, things we find harder to understand, like 12 notes and serial music and and, and so on. Mm. And that great tradition is something where... You know, people kind of choose their little slice of it that they're most fond of. But one of the things that those of us who love, particularly, I suppose, music from Bach to, shall we say, Mahler or Schoenberg, Mm. is this inexpressible quality and feeling you get that 
there is a narrative, but it's emotional. You can't quite put it into words. You can't... I mean, Bruckner tried to, mm. with his symphonies, write stories. You know, he told you what was happening. And you can stick to it and say someone's going through the wood at this particular time <laughs> or here's a soldier or something. And, you know, like Peter and the Wolf, that, that can work. You know, you can substitute and make a story. But... Most of us, when we listen to a piece, and it can be a you know hoary old favourite like I don't know the Egmont Overture or something of Beethoven's, mm. or or it, or or it can be the Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto, and depending on your mood, depending how actively you're listening, rather than just having it on in the background, you can enter into it and feel a journey of hope dashed, of triumph over adversity, of evil conquered, or indeed of evil not conquered, of an ambiguity and a fear and a terror and so on. I think probably the third, the final gallop of the Tchaikovsky violin is so wonderful because it, it contains some of the sort of pain of the earlier movements, but it's convincing itself that it's going to have a happy ending and it's just diving towards it and it's, it's got tension about it, which is what I love. <laughs> I can remember I had a good fortune to have a music teacher who played us the Emperor Concerto, Beethoven's fifth piano concerto, and he told us to imagine that a concerto was an argument between an individual and a collective group of people, mm -hmm. and that the individual was the soloist who was trying to express their individuality, and the orchestra was society or the world. And sometimes the world is against you. Sometimes it joins in with you. Sometimes you argue with it. Sometimes you come together in a triumphant belief that we can all coexist. And that isn't the actual and eternal meaning of a concerto, of course. But as a guide to listening to a concerto, it's magnificent because it instantly, you, you hear that extraordinary opening of the fifth, when you, this statement, this furious and amazing mm. piano, and then the orchestra comes in and they do have to accommodate each other. And so it isn't being pretentious mm. to see it as some kind of a battle. Concerto without tension would make no sense. I mean, you're a musician and you hear that tension in all kinds of ways that are way beyond my understanding. Obviously, the most valid for when you put together a concerto, when you're conducting it and working with the soloist, you are talking in purely musical terms. But I'm sure you somewhere, even in your deep musicality, would agree that there is a way for non-musicians like me to find these kinds of structure and meaning in music without having to know what an augmented 
seventh is or a diminished this or a... Do you know what I mean? It's nice to know those things, and I'm not saying one shouldn't, but it is possible to lose oneself in uh, the dialectic or the argument or the struggle in which this music so often suggests. You take me back to my time as a teenager, because I was a chorister, of course, but it strikes me that there is something very important that we are missing now in our hopes for education, introducing people to music, which is there shouldn't be a focus on the nuts and bolts. The point is one needs to be introduced to music of all types, introduced to it with a few pointers and the hopes that, that everyone will concentrate Mm-hmm. Now, that's something that also needs to be taught a little. Yes. Simply to let the music work yeah. on you. Yeah. And the trouble is, there may well be too much emphasis, and certainly certain parents find themselves confused, in that practice so that the fourth fingers on the hands <laughs> become uh, absolutely equal is one thing, but the introduction to the music you're playing is as important. Isn't that right? I'm sure that's right, yes, because what they're practising and what they're doing is creating a sound which is so much more than the sum of its parts and which creates yep. in the human breast of feelings which are inexpressible in any other... Yeah. Form. It's all very well for, you know, to call, as I think it was Goethe, for, to call architecture frozen music. Mm, and yes. it's a good way of looking at architecture as being something more than just buildings and it's, you know, to try and see the artistic in it and the, mm. you know, the mm. rhythms of an arcade or something like that. But the fact is music is unique. Mm. It is, I think Tia said, it's the deepest of the arts and deep beneath the arts. It is something so profound within us that... Even if we can't perform it, I can't dance, I can't play with any consistency, I can't sing, so I can't do music. But Mm. I would argue listening to it, responding to it, being passionate about it, being moved by it, is part of doing music. The performance is not all. It's like what Oscar Wilde said about theatre, the greatest artists in the theatre are the audience. They make the evening work by their commitment, by their attention, by their understanding, by their intuition. And they are the playwrights at the end. And the musicians are are those for whom the music works. Because if the music only worked for other musicians, it would be a bit like talking about David Hilbert's mathematical formulae or something. Only other mathematicians can understand it. And it may well be beautiful and important in the world of maths. But if you can't read those furious symbols on the blackboard, and then it's pointless. I think it's sort of unique, or not exactly not unique. It shares with only mathematics and chess, perhaps go, the fact that you can have a prodigy. Yes. The fact that you can have a five-year-old doing things that a 30-year-old who has practised all their life couldn't do, mm. that they are so supremely gifted. But you wouldn't expect that five-year-old to be able to talk coherently about the effect um, Mozart or, you know, Bruckner has on your feelings. Mm. <laughs> that would be absurd. There is that side to music that is mathematical, that is gifted in the brain, that allows astonishing performances and coordination mm. and things that, you know, really are 
miracles to, to the non-musician. Yes. Let me just, slightly tangentially, but I think it works, talk about Wagner. Yes. Because well, it comes off from my father because the other thing he had was a collection of records and things like that. And I remember once he was playing the overture to Tannhäuser. And I had a similar experience to the Schubert. I just wanted to know what on earth this was. I found it this so extraordinary. This is one of Joe's favourite mm. pieces, actually, as well. I had, I had, it's astonishing. I don't know what it is. I, they suddenly, it utterly grabbed me. I had, we had it at school and I used to play it every Sunday when we were allowed the gramophone in the prefect's study. And <laughs> it was, and on the front of the LP that I had of, I think it was, anyway, various overtures, but... It had a picture of a mountain, so I've always connected it with mountains. I've always heard that music as great soaring mountains. But I, th I wondered if, if they'd put a different picture. Yes, whether, they, maybe they should have had a, a pilgrimage maybe. with bran holding branches, which is sort of the story, isn't it? <laughs> In as much as it has a story. Exactly, but I didn't know that because all I could feel were these vast soaring... He's the master of the climax, isn't he, of the soaring climax. So a mountain is always going to be <laughs> going a good symbol. And you realise that he's so profound in his handling of emotion and all the things that Shakespeare was good at, you know, fathers and daughters yeah. and, you know, the most important parts of human drama really are there. And love, obviously, above all love. And the, you know, the choice between being powerful, which you could also say rich, having influence over others, being strong, and being filled with love. And the two are incompatible. And I suppose, you know, that's a, obviously a simplistic message, but it's a profound one that we seem always to need to remember. So you probably were introduced in the way that I was talking about earlier to Wagner when you were quite young. Mm. And in my teens, I had a wonderful music master who, because I didn't do the Tuesday afternoon squaddy stuff, <laughs> yes, um, the cause. Because I was, I, I was released as I was a musician because it was the only time we had to practice. Music was not, it was extracurricular even oh. then. And he just grabbed me at one stage and said, come with me, I want you to listen to something. And he sat me down on his sofa and put a huge score in front of me. And it was Rheingold. And he said, I'm going to put these on. Now change the records. You can do all that. And I'll come back in two and a half hours. Wow. And as a result of that, I found other times when he would sort of, with a nod and a wink, say, this afternoon? And I would say, yep, okay. And so I'd listen to the whole of the ring. Now, my point is that I was simply bowled over. Yeah. I was pretty devastated by the whole size of it. I was suddenly being introduced to massive scores, massive landscapes of stories, yeah. massive voices. Gigantic resources from the orchestra and extra instruments thrown in, flugelhorns. Oh, and the idea <laughs> of Wagner tubers.
I then went on to see my first Wagner dress rehearsal, Covent Garden, when I think I was at Cambridge, and it was Tristan, and I was bored stiff. I didn't really get it. And, you know, all my life I've thought, no, Wagner will come and get me. I know he will. I'm confident he will. And the moment came with Tristan and Valkyra, and I'd done The Flying Dutchman, and I'd done Secret Idyll endlessly in concert, and I'd done the, the Ride of the Valkyries. I'd done these sort of highlights. But it wasn't until I gave him my time that it all began to unravel and reveal itself. Because Wagner is one of these things, I think, that you should never be have forced on you. No, no. Although I think there was a huge advantage to our generation. There was for me, and you know, also at Cambridge, this is going to put a lot of people off, <laughs> but I shared rooms in my second year with someone who was passionate about Wagner and had a box set and of the Schulte Ring, the, mm. the famous mm. Decca recording, which was mm. astonishing. Mm. But also there was a dean who had a massive collection. And there was a don at another college, Michael Tanner, who's quite a well-known opera critic. Yes, yes. Who yes. was at Corpus Christi. And in those days, to buy a box set of Wagner, you needed to be very rich. I mean, these yeah. sort of 18, 19, yep. 20 discs in these huge box mm. sets. So you relied on friends or indeed grown-ups, as it were, the teachers, the dons, as they're called there, who would have a collection built up over the time, and they would have a party and all sit on the carpet, and you would pass round the most useful thing for understanding Wagner, which to me is not the score, but mm. is the <laughs> libretto, as it's known in, in yes. operatic terms, but you might call it because he thinks they're, they're music dramas, the script, mm. which he wrote himself and, you know, German speakers say it isn't the greatest poetry in German, but nonetheless... Every beat of it is connected to the music and to the drama mm. unfolding and to the characters. And nowadays with CDs and even more with streaming, all you get is the music. I know. And so you I can't know. follow the story. So my student life was spent with these, you know, you'd have the German and then the English and possibly French on the in the right column. And you would so when you heard these dialogues between Wotan and Brunhilde, they weren't you're just going, yeah, well, nice. This isn't really a tune. What's going on here? You would actually read it. And you'd say, oh, and then you'd hear this music, these themes coming in. Mm. And they made more sense because you knew what was happening. Mm. So there was that. There was the feeling of how special and difficult it was to get hold of, which is always a pull to the young. It makes it a treat. And there was the ability to understand it better. And the problem now is that it is, yes, you have surtitles, as they call them, you know, so you can see the English coming across, you know, the architrave or whatever, you know, the, 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 the top of the proscenium arch when you're sitting in the audience at an opera. So you can now, if it's in Italian, French, German or whatever other language you can understand, or indeed in English, because singers aren't always very clear. So there is that advantage. But generally speaking, I think, we did live in the golden age of classical music recording. There were some geniuses of John Culshaw, who was the engineer behind the yep. Wagner's Ring for Decker, and, and of course, people like Walter Legge and Richard Bonning and, you know, these sort of producer impresarios, most of them married to, to sopranos who they were quite <laughs> happy to push in the case of Legge. Schwarzkopf and, 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 Schwarzkopf and, and Sutherland. Sutherland. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes. And, of course, the money went into it. You know, they put money 
money into it. Decca and Columbia and EMI, mm. HMV, they all regarded their classical collection as one of the most important and the sort of signature and the, the icing on, on their cake, although most of the money, of course, by this time was coming post-Beatles from pop music, and obviously it was. Mm, mm. But now it's so difficult. You talk to people who work in the recording industry, it's very, very hard to get these these recordings out. I think that's largely gone. Yeah. So it's very important in the same way with movies, I think, that you try and encourage the young to believe that black and white is not boring. In fact, some of the greatest stories ever told and the most moving experiences you could ever have at a film are in black and white mm. or are made pre-1980 or pre-1990 or even pre-2000 for some young people. It's, it's a bit of an ask to get them to watch something from that past. And you always hear when there's a quiz program on television and someone says, you know, something about a film that might have been, you know, broadcasting, the, oh, they go, oh, that was before my time. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> How is that an excuse for not knowing about things? It's just so annoying. (laughs) And so classical music faces that problem. How do you get people to listen to the great recordings? I think that people should just, I think it should just be rather like if children aren't fed foods, they then develop a sort of hatred for them. And so they wouldn't eat, I don't know, broccoli or they won't eat stuff or they won't eat stuff because they never ate it as a child. If it's literally put in front of them, They simply eat it. If it's what everybody else is eating, if they're eating what the grown-ups are eating, and if they're listening to music which is just simply put on and played, whether it's played in assembly or whether it's played during a lesson, if it's just played, it becomes completely normal. It's this idea of presenting it as a sort of a rarity that you've got to either love. And it's good for you. And it's good for you. And it's in competition with other stuff. That's why I I love reading about chefs who adore Marmite or sometimes have a beef burger or something (laughs) because you know that we all have these moments where we'd like something slightly different. And I think that music should be presented because when they have music questions, Stephen, on the quizzes, it's always about pop music. It's almost never, except on University Challenge, it's never, ever about... So music now And on University Challenge, sometimes you get one who who really does obviously know and love them. But otherwise you get a piece of Bartok and they'll say... Bach? Question <laughs> mark. And you kind of think, oh, okay. <laughs> we shouldn't laugh like But, this. Um, Stephen, do you, have, um, do you have from your young, young love of music? I loved Chopin when I was young because I think he was accessible. It was piano music, largely. I didn't know his symphonies, but I knew his piano music and loved it because I felt myself I could play the piano. I couldn't, but I felt I could play along with him. Did you have a favourite young composer and has that changed as you've grown and matured? I absolutely fell you know, for, for Beethoven and a lot of his piano music. I loved the sonatas and, you know, I, I tried to play Fiorelisa like every child does on the piano and sort of got to halfway through and then found it a bit difficult. <laughs> and then as a teenager, as Wagner kicked in, I became very 19th century. And it's only in the last 20 years that I've become fanatical about Bach. I had a a huge man crush on Glenn Gould and would listen to, to almost nothing but his piano versions of Bach, his Goldberg variations, both the ones he'd made in the 50s and then the ones he made just mm. before mm. he died. The Goldberg variations are really superb, I agree. Above everything, his innovations signalled a very clear love for his source material. He took the piece's unusual status 
a theme and variation work so varied that it could be hard for a lay audience to follow and must have realized that it could be performed with what one might say is modernist vigor, full of wild twists of character. It's interesting that so many pianists have now really dug into Bach. And what I love is that you are allowed at least to play Bach on the Steinway Concert Grand. And Barenboim, of course, can make a huge Steinway Concert Grand sound very intimate and yeah. beautiful and, and precise. And Murray Pariah does the same. Such a wonderful touch. It's kind of relief that there are so many now different ways of playing Bach and they're yeah. all, they are all acceptable. Yes, I completely <laughs> agree. I completely agree. Even Jacques Lussier. In fact, particularly Jacques oh. Lussier. I love Jacques Lussier. <laughs> played Bach in <laughs> yeah. the 60s. I remember Absolutely having that. phenomenal. We've got to... We've yes, we have to wind up. up we literally don't want to. We want you to come and A, live with us and B, talk all day <laughs> and possibly all night about music and about everything else, Stephen. Thank you so much for being here. There are not us. many places um, where we get the opportunity to unembarrassedly say at Cambridge and Bartok. <laughs> if you try and do that on the <laughs> one so show, bad. you'll get cancelled. It's worse than will swearing. You, <laughs> Stephen, will you choose a piece of music that you would like us to play out this little episode? Oh, yes. Let me think. There was one I made a note of because it was new to me and it's so beautifully played. It's by Couperin, who is a, not a, a composer I'm hugely familiar with. In fact, like a lot of those French composers, I always thought when I was young, I thought they were a bit dull. And of course, they are so far from being dull. <laughs> and this is a piano piece. It's played by Simone Dynastine or Dynastine. I don't know how she pronounces it. And it's called Les Barricades. Mysterious, the mysterious Fantastic. barricades. And it's a beautiful rolling piece of piano music that I have become extremely fond of. And it speaks to me, and I'm not quite sure why, because it is very French. And we think of the French as Gallic and therefore hot tempered, but actually they're usually the opposite. They're rather distant and, uh, and unapproachable. But uh, this is charming, I think. Anyway, enough from me. Fantastic. It's been I a look joy to hearing that. Yeah. Thank you, Stephen. Thank <laughs> Bless you. you. Thank you. Well, much love. been listening to Joanna and the Maestro, a cup and nozzle burning bright productions and Bauer media show. It's presented by me, Joanna Lumley, and my husband, Stephen Barlow. Our executive producers are Matt Everett, Graham Hodge, and Clive Tullow. The show is produced and edited by Hunter Charlton and mix and mastering is by David Bloor. Our head of production is Rebecca Mills. Our production manager is Sarah Anderson, 
and our production coordinator is Maxim Taylor. All music for the intros is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. In this episode, you heard the following music, impromptu number two in A-flat major, written by Franz Schubert and performed by Henrik Moore. The record label was Music Group. Violin Concerto in D Major, Opus 35, written by Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky and performed by Yehudi Menahin, the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Sir Adrian Bolt. The record label was Parlophone Records Limited, a Warner Music Group company. Piano Concerto No. 5 in E-flat major, Opus 73, Emperor, written by Ludwig van Beethoven and performed by André Previn, Emmanuel Axe and the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. The record label was BMG Music. Tannhäuser, Overture, written by Richard Wagner. Performed by the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra, the Bavarian Radio Chorus, Walton Gronrus, Siegfried Jerusalem, Klaus Koenig, Waltrud Meyer, Kurt Moll, Lucia Pop, Bernard Weichel, Rainer Schultz, Donald Litteker, Gabrielle Seamer, and Vietolzer Naven. Conducted by Bernard Heitink. The record label was EMI Records Limited. Das Rheingold. Written by Richard Wagner. And performed by Fritz Uhl, Dededza Niplover, Gerald McKay, Grosses Symphony Orchester, Hans Swarovski, and Rolf Polka. The record label was SLG, Goldberg Variations, BWV 988, Variation 5. Written by Johann Sebastian Bach and performed by Glenn Gould. The record label was Sony BMG Music Entertainment. Les Barricades Mysterieuses. Written by Francois Coupron and performed by Simon Dynastine. The record label was Orange Mountain Music.